This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books podcast, the New Books in Political Science podcast channel. Today I'm joined by Jamie Arusi, who is the author of The Dialectical Self, Kierkegaard, Marx, and the Making of the Modern Subject. This book was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019, um, and it's a fascinating analysis of Kierkegaard and Marx, particularly in context of um, the way that they follow Hegel. But I'm going to let Jamie talk to us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to ask Jamie Arusi to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hello, Jamie. Hi there. Thank you. Yes. So um, first, I wanted to thank you for inviting me on. I've, I've really been looking forward to the chance to talk about my work. So thank you. And um, I am a political theorist by training, and I'm currently serving as a senior research fellow at the Hong Kierkegaard Library at St. Olaf College. Um, and I thought that maybe uh, in order to explain how I came upon this project, a little bit of uh, biography might help. Um, I uh, began my training in political thought as an undergraduate uh, at the University of Toronto, um, but after that I did an interdisciplinary master's degree, and uh, it was there that I, I had the opportunity of taking a, a comprehensive class on Kierkegaard, and uh, from that moment on I knew that uh, whatever shape my uh, doctoral research would take, um, that uh, Kierkegaard was going to play a big part of it. Um, but I didn't end up staying at York University for my PhD, but uh, I went to the City University of New York Graduate Center. And what uh, drew me there was that I was interested in working with uh, Marshall Berman. And uh, some of your listeners might know of Marshall's work, um, but I think he's probably best known as a Marxist humanist. And uh, what drew me to Marshall, though, uh, wasn't his work on Marx, but that we were both motivated by very similar questions of selfhood. And so I think he had turned to uh, to Marx for his answers, and uh, I turned to Kierkegaard. And so uh, bringing my interest in Kierkegaard to work with Marshall, it was almost almost inevitable, I think, that I'd, I'd stumble upon their marriage. And uh, I remain, you know, I feel very, very lucky that I that I did. And so in this context, and, and you sort of open up the book this way as well, you talk about the fact that Marx and Kierkegaard are coming at this question of selfhood, as you just noted, um, through the shadow, if you will, of Hegel and Hegel's work and Hegel's approach. Can you talk a little bit about how and why Hegel casts this kind of shadow that they are then sort of following in 
in the work that they're doing? Uh, yeah, of course. So uh, both Kierkegaard and Marx, they were contemporaries with one another. They didn't know about one another, but they began writing at almost exactly the same time, at 1843, in 1843, just about. And uh, as you mentioned, at that point in time, uh, everyone was sort of working in the shadow of Hegel, who had died uh, just over a decade earlier. And uh, what happens with Kierkegaard and Marx is that uh, they're struggling against Hegel's legacy. They're borrowing elements of his thought, but they sort of similarly diagnose uh, a problem with his philosophical project. And uh, it was a problem that was not only unique to Hegel, but I think that they both thought was sort of uh, a constitutive of a Western thought more broadly. Uh, and in fact, Hegel uh, identified this problem in his own work, but it wasn't a problem from, from his point of view. Um, probably some of your, your uh, listeners might have heard of uh, Hegel's phrase that the uh, owl of Minerva only uh, takes flight uh, at the onset of dusk. Uh, it's a very famous Hegelian phrase. And uh, what he meant by that is that uh, the wisdom that philosophy can provide is something that philosophy always provides after the fact. Um, the philosophy, in other words, can't think about things that haven't happened yet. It can't really think about the future. It has to think about the past. And the task of a philosopher is to help make sense of the past. And so philosophy for Hegel, and, and I think for, for uh, at least according to Kierkegaard and Marx, for really most of uh, the history of Western thought, had this backward-looking orientation. And for Marx and Kierkegaard, this made philosophy a very uh, conservative project. And so their writing after Hegel had sort of brought Western thought to a particularly focused point, and they're similarly trying to rescue it from this shared problem that they identify uh, um, in Hegel and in Western thought, which is that they want to try to take uh, the best of Hegel and change its orientation from looking towards the past and reorient it towards the future so that philosophy can help us both imagine different futures and also make those futures uh, happen. And you can see this explicitly in both uh, Kierkegaard and Marx's work. Um, one of Marx's most famous phrases is that uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world, but that the task is to change it. And uh, you see very similar sentiments in, in Kierkegaard as well. Um, he was famous for having said that, uh, you know, very similar uh, um, uh, claim that philosophers uh, have argued that life can only be understood backwards. But what they fail to recognize is that we have no choice but to live life forwards. Um, and so they're both interested in offering uh, a new idea of philosophy that has its orientation towards the future. And so the way that they do this is also very similar. And, you know, for all of their criticism of Hegel, they're both deeply Hegelian. And so they borrow a couple of central concepts from Hegel, uh, his concepts of freedom and selfhood, um, and uh, which are central concepts not only in Hegel, but in Kierkegaard and Marx. And then rather than the story that Hegel tells in his thought, which is sort of this historical story of how we've come to embody more freedom over time, Kierkegaard and Marx change the perspective, look towards the future, and set about uh, um, using philosophy in order to argue how we can uh, uh, come to appropriate more freedom in the future. And so in, in very broad strokes, they're struggling against Hegel uh, and against the legacy of Western thought, and they're doing it in, in extremely similar, similar ways. 
Um, but outside of these sort of broad similarities, which I think really go to the core of their thought, uh, when it comes to the substance of their thought, they're extremely different thinkers. And, and for this reason, I think they've generally been treated as, as distinct. There, there's no real serious comparative work uh, putting them into conversation. Um, because when you actually look at what they wrote, what they wrote is totally different. Uh, Marx was almost exclusively interested in questions of social, political, and economic life. And uh, Kierkegaard was interested in psychological, spiritual, and ethical questions. So Marx sort of looks outward towards the objective world, and Kierkegaard looks inward towards the subjective world. But it's ultimately the the argument of, of my work that these aren't real fundamental sort of differences or oppositions, but two sides of the same coin that Marx is interested in the project of making freedom sort of manifest in the world on a universal scale. And Kierkegaard is interested in making freedom manifest in our individual lives on a more personal scale. And so as the book progresses, my hope is that in sort of weaving these two together, um, readers will get a sense of how Kierkegaard and Marx need one another, how uh, this idea of sort of personal liberation can't be separated from political liberation. And similarly, political liberation depends on personal liberation, too. And and this is one of the things that you point out and you you make so clear in your book is the way that the two thinkers, Marx and Kierkegaard, have kind of um, disciplinarily been siloed, um, that they have been sort of separated from one another so that they don't have this kind of encounter that you've put them in where you are noting where they are connected um, in theory, um, but with different emphases and different um, directions. And so can you talk a little bit about how um, Kierkegaard has kind of been appropriated by um, sort of understandings of theology and religious studies, whereas Marx has been appropriated by political science and sociology. And again, sort of never their, their paths shall meet, except in your book. <laughs> yes, well, hopefully it's the, the first of, of, of uh, more such conversations. Um, but yes, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, if you look at uh, the way uh, Kierkegaard and Marx are sort of divided among contemporary academic disciplines, um, you find all of the research in Kierkegaard coming out of philosophy and religion departments almost exclusively, uh, and the work on Marx coming out of political science and sociology departments. And if you want to study uh, these two figures, um, then you know you you sort of cloister yourself off to their respective departments. Um, and it's very rare that you find someone uh, uh, who's sort of had training in, in both of these figures, even though hopefully, you know, uh, uh, outside of the more com complicated argument that I make uh, in the book, um, just for sort of simple historical reasons, they should have been in, put in conversation before. Um, you know, they even share the same birthday. Um, it's five years apart, but uh, but I still uh, I still sort of appreciate that little historical accident. But um, they start writing at the same time. Um, they're informed by Hegel in very similar ways. They're informed by sort of their historical moment in very similar ways. Um, they're both foundational figures for contemporary uh, Western thought. Um, and and uh, um, there are all of these reasons why we should put them into conversation. And yet, you know, it's almost, you know, 200 years later. And uh, this is really the first first book that does it. 
Um, you know, at times you sort of find these figures who who realize how complementary they are. Uh, probably uh, among all of them, one of my favorites is uh, is Sartre, um, who um, has this great phrase in, in, uh, in an address that he gives where he talks about um, Kierkegaard and Marx as being the task of the future. Um, by which he meant that the project of both personal and political emancipation uh, is the challenge that, you know, we all have to struggle with, you know, going into the 21st, uh, 21st century. We have to struggle with, you know, the legacy of Kierkegaard and the legacy of Marx. And so you find these figures periodically popping up uh, who recognize uh, um, their relationship, at least at some level. Um, but I think, you know, for, for disciplinary reasons, uh, uh, they've never really, you know, they've never really put into conversation. And in part, that's why, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I'm grateful I sort of stumbled upon this project because it was really by accident. I think if I wasn't doing uh, a master's degree in an interdisciplinary field where I was taking philosophy classes and religion classes and political theory classes, uh, I never would have stumbled upon Kierkegaard. And without that uh, being a political theorist, I never would have known that uh, that there was actually a project here to do. And and so the project is one that you sketch out in the book that comes essentially in, in four parts. Um, and you note that you know, sort of both thinkers are coming from this sort of place of what you term as bondage um, and the sort of the unfree self. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the idea, that idea of the unfree self and how how the sort of striving towards freedom um, is outlined by both the thinkers? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so um, I think that, you know, the argument in the first part of the book where I talk about um, uh, Kierkegaard and Marx's respective concepts of bondage, which is, you know, a term that uh, sort of gives a tip of the hat to, uh, to Hegel, um, is that, uh, um, uh, you know, I hopefully demonstrate that when it comes to understanding the opposite of freedom, and they're both philosophers of freedom, um, that at a phenomenological level, they talk about unfreedom or bondage in, in really identical terms. Um, and the concepts that I anal- analyze in that part of the book are uh, Marx's concept of alienation, uh, which probably, you know, a lot of listeners have heard of, uh, and also uh, Kierkegaard's concept of despair. And when you sort of uh, remove some of the political language that Marx uses or the economic language that Marx uses and some of the uh, uh, religious language that Kierkegaard uses, uh, you come to realize that they're really talking about the same phenomenon. And for both Kierkegaard and Marx, I think, and this is this is a legacy that they inherit from, from Hegel, but, you know, from other people as well, um, that uh, um, when they, when it comes to understanding what we as human beings are, what's the nature of the, of the self, for both uh, Kierkegaard and Marx, are, are the essence of our selfhood is found in, in freedom, that that's what it means to be uh, a human being. But uh, unlike other creatures, you know, who, who are born with their nature, um, we're born with sort of the potential for freedom, but uh, it's, all, it's a potential that we each need to actualize or appropriate in our, in our lives. And so when it comes to understanding bondage, they both understand it. Alienation and despair are two ways of talking about creatures, human beings, whose fundamental nature is freedom, but who act in a way that, that isn't free. 
Um, and they're both really describing, you know, uh, um, I like using Marx's term because alienation is sort of evocative of, of the problem. They're both describing this fundamental alienation from ourselves. And they're both trying to set up a, a philosophical project that helps us sort of recover this, this nature that, that, that's, our, that's our birthright. And, and so the next part of the book, you talk about the process, the emancipation process that they both are sketching in their philosophies. Um, and that, you know, you sort of talk about this as a kind of metaphysics of freedom. Can you talk a little bit about how each, each um, writer, thinker, uh, approaches this sort of move towards freedom? Uh, yes. So Kierkegaard and Marx, they, they understand bondage in the same way. That, that it's a phenomenon in which free creatures act unfreely. Um, where, they, where they differ is really on the cause of what causes unfreedom. And for Marx, uh, the cause is external. It's you know the forms of domination that we experience in the world, particularly uh, economic exploitation, um, because we're, we're forced to work in an unfree economic system that we can't really embody the freedom that's our, that's our true nature. And so the struggle is sort of external. Um, but for Kierkegaard, there's another dimension to that alienation. He doesn't see its cause as lying in the outside world, but in the internal world. That, uh, um, you know, for, for a couple of reasons that, you know, for instance, we're, we're each socialized into our particular world. And so we develop identities and attachments uh, and really, de- you know, the, the world into which we're born has a deep psychological hold on us. And so even though we're born into this alienated or despairing world for Kierkegaard, there's an element of volition to it that, that we want to be alienated. And so that the struggle for freedom is in large part a struggle against those parts of ourselves that don't want freedom, uh, not only because of the attachment that we develop uh, um, uh, to the world in which we're born, um, but also because we're scared of the burden of freedom, that, that if we're truly free, um, that comes with a kind of moral responsibility for our actions that, that very few of us are comfortable accepting. And so, you know, not only do we, do we uh, not want freedom because we're attached to the world in which we live, but we don't want freedom because freedom itself can be, can be terrifying. And so when it comes to understanding emancipation, they understand it uh, in different terms. For Kierkegaard, it's sort of a personal struggle as we learn to sort of identify and develop the courage uh, to overcome those parts of ourselves that, that, uh, that don't want to be free. Uh, whereas for Marx, it's much more of an external struggle uh, in which we struggle against the parts of the world that, that want to keep us dominated. Um, but hopefully in, in that section... Uh, uh, it's the purpose of, of that section on bondage to demonstrate how these sort of two dramas, these two narratives are, are really intimately related that uh, until we sort of overcome our own, uh, our own sort of subservience to the world in which we're born, we're not going to struggle for any greater amount of political freedom because, you know, the world is comfortable for us. And so there's a way in which Marx's call for political emancipation uh, really depends on the kinds of people that, that uh, Kierkegaard is attempting to cultivate, people who've appropriated freedom personally and who are therefore in a position to realize all of the ways that the world fails to live up to this quality that, that now has come to constitute who they are. And so weaving those two narratives together hopefully gives the reader a sense of how 
uh, the struggle for emancipation is both deeply personal, psychological, and spiritual, um, but also has this, you know, uh, political, social, and, uh, and economic dimension to it as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so the, the next two parts of the book essentially pivot into the direction of, of taking on this this freedom. And then also, as you talk about the kind of directing philosophy towards the future, as opposed to the past, the, the sort of putting it into, into effect, um, and the section that you call praxis. Um, and, and so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, how we can then see this understanding of, Freedom, which is frightening, as you note, um, for most human beings in in a lot of these contexts, but then also how to take that freedom and put it into um, into uh, into effect into um, our lives, into politics. Um, can you talk a little bit towards those two sections? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so you're right. The third section is is a section on uh, on freedom. So the book sort of moves from bondage to emancipation and then to freedom. Uh, and, and not that's, Passover, right? Sorry? And it's, and it's yeah. Not, not Passover. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And um, the, the purpose of that is to demonstrate how really at the core of Kierkegaard and Marx's thought uh, is really a fundamentally shared idea of what it means to be a free self. And Marx helps us imagine what a free world looks like. Kierkegaard helps us imagine what, what, a free, what it means to be as a free individual, um, but how they're, they're really complementary arguments that for Marx, a free world is a world constituted with free individuals. Uh, and then Kierkegaard helps us understand what those, what those individuals uh, look like. Um, and, and part of the purpose of that chapter is also, or that section rather, it's three chapters, uh, is to help real help contemporary theorists also part of part of the book is there to demonstrate that uh, uh, these ideas are already in circulation um, that it's hard to sort of overestimate Kierkegaard and Marx's contribution to how we think about uh, all of these issues um, but especially in the case of Kierkegaard we get them all secondhand and so uh, um, part of the purpose of, of the book is to bring us back to uh, where I think the origin is so that we can recognize that when we're thinking through freedom, we're often thinking through still freedom in the, in the shadow of Kierkegaard and Marx. Um, but after that section that, that hopefully uh, um, paints, a, paints a compelling picture of what freedom looks like, um, the book ends with the, the, fourth, uh, the fourth section, which is, as you mentioned, on praxis. Um, and the purpose of that section was to hopefully bring the book full circle to tell a complete narrative of freedom from bondage to emancipation to freedom uh, and then to circle back to bondage again because um, none of us have the luxury of, of living in a world uh, um, that that's free um, certainly you know in all kinds of ways more free than it has been in the past but uh, falling far short of the sort of vision of, of freedom that we find in Marx or, or uh, Kierkegaard. 
Um, and so the question then emerges is, you know, now that we understand this, uh, if we're sympathetic to the, the vision that, that Marx and Kierkegaard uh, have to offer, um, what are we supposed to do? And the argument in that last book is that, in fact, that question of what are we supposed to do is really the animating question behind almost everything that Marx wrote and almost everything that Kierkegaard wrote, that sort of unlike Hegel and philosophers that that were like Hegel, Kierkegaard and Marx weren't really interested in offering sort of speculative or abstract uh, abstract uh, um, explanations of, you know, what concepts like freedom were. They were instead interested, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, in reorienting philosophy towards the future so that philosophy and thought itself uh, can help aid in the task of making the world more free. And so the kind of thought that they left behind, the kind of texts that they wrote, aren't texts that you could turn to in the way that you can turn to a textbook when you want an answer, you know, what does Kierkegaard think about X or what does Marx think about X? That, that these are texts rather that are really tied up with their conception of freedom, that, that the purpose of these texts was to leave behind something useful that could help in the, in the task of freedom. And, and I think this is maybe uh, a clearest in Kierkegaard, uh, who's very esoteric in the way that he writes and who writes indirectly through pseudonyms. So it's very difficult to uh, understand what Kierkegaard is actually you know, claiming about any particular concept, but whose books are sort of provocations. The, the purpose of these texts is to provoke us into deeper self-understanding so that we can hopefully become a little bit a little bit more free. And uh, I think that's true of Marx's texts as well, that, that he's not interested in offering us sort of definitive answers, but in offering us a way that we can think about our world so that we can use this new style of thought in, in our own project of emancipation. And and one of the one of the points that you make sort of through the book is that both um, Marx and Kierkegaard um, have small deficits in their in their sort of philosophical sketches that the other one kind of makes up for. Um, that you know, Marx has this um, sort of harder line with regard to the role of religion um, in his philosophy, and that Kierkegaard in his emphasis on interiority and the individual is not necessarily pulling um, into his sketch uh, the role of the greater political sort of forces. Um, can you talk a little bit about how in, in, you, in putting them into this encounter, I think you sort of show how they they are complementing each other with regard to those sort of nominal absences. Uh, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. It's it's um, it's one that I like talking about because I think it's you know for a lot of people sort of an obvious point of of criticism of of this project, um, and you know because Marx clearly you know criticized religion. And, and for those who know Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard also was very critical, sort of liberal or progressive politics. And so, you know, that sort of antagonism, which is, is very easy to, uh, to uncover, um, would seem to sort of mitigate against uh, putting them into conversation in any, in any serious way. Um, but I think also that that, that is sort of, uh, uh, it's a very conventional approach to them. I think it's also, unfortunately, a pretty superficial approach to them. Um, and in order to sort of see why that's the case, it, it maybe helps 
you know, when Marx criticizes religion to understand what in religion he's criticizing, and Marx very much has in mind uh, the sort of conventional religion, organized religion uh, that plays a role in social domination. And so, you know, he's criticizing religion for the, for the, for the function that it plays within, within societies of oppression. And, you know, Marx is, is right about that. Uh, and not only is he right about that, but if you want to find a, a critic of religion, of that kind of religion, uh, and you want to find a really compelling criticism of that kind of religion, um, Kierkegaard offers, you know, critis- he spent his entire life criticizing the, the Danish church, um, who was probably his, uh, his, greatest, uh, his greatest sort of uh, rhetorical enemy. And so uh, uh, Kierkegaard was a greater critic of, of conventional religion uh, than was Marx. Um, and sort of reciprocally, when it comes to Kierkegaard, when he's criticizing uh, progressive politics, what he's criticizing is sort of the way that uh, um, we can cloak ourselves in progressive rhetoric um, without actually making any kind of dramatic personal changes. So that where, in other words, where, you know, progressive slogans become uh, the new slogans that we socialize ourselves into, that we subordinate ourselves into, um, but that rather than, you know, a progressive movement that's based on a real appropriation of individual freedom, uh, progressive slogans just become the new sort of mob to which we each subordinate ourselves. So rather than actually advancing freedom uh, um, for Kierkegaard, and he's looking at sort of you know, some of his liberal contemporaries, he looks at them and he sees that basically, you know, there's something sort of cult-like about the way that they, that they fetishize, you know, values like freedom and equality. Um, but when you actually look at Kierkegaard's life, it was a life really spent uh, in service of attacking, you know, political and religious authorities. It was a life spent dedicated to helping, you know, the common people of Copenhagen. And so as an individual, he was very compassionate and sort of very deeply committed to uh, um, to uh, everyday everyday citizens of, of Copenhagen. And what he was suspicious of was really the way that that progressive politics can become uh, a form of domination themselves. And you know, you could probably look pretty easily towards the history of of Marxism to find you know your examples of where that criticism is true. Um, but you know, I think by putting them into conversation, what you really get. Uh, is an appreciation for the way that they each correct one another, that Kierkegaard was never really able to think about, you know, the way that his conception of sort of individual freedom and moral responsibility, which he lived in his life and which from a personal point of view meant that he had to be committed to Copenhagen's poor, for instance, but he was never able to think through that commitment in a systematic way because he was always worried that if he did think it through in a systematic way, that he'd be creating sort of a new ideology to which people would subordinate their freedom. And similarly for Marx, um, Marx, you know, wants, is interested in this sort of political transformation. And he presupposes that, you know, for instance, the working class uh, is going to be the agent of change because he thinks that the experience of, of working in a capitalist economy sort of wipes away past ideologies and creates a constituency of individuals who are free and who then want to demand freedom on a, on a universal scale. Um, but what he wasn't always attentive to was the way that uh, um, that sort of appropriation of individual freedom, that what makes the working class radical is not only this class position in the economy, but also a very personal struggle. 
uh, that helps explain why sometimes the working class, you know, can become very sort of progressively radical, but other times can become reactionary and conservative. And sort of without this attention to this sort of spiritual or psychological dynamic that takes place within each of us, uh, we don't really have a full explanation for why sometimes individuals become radical in their politics while at other times they become reactionary. And and so in that context also, as you, you know, you sort of are positioning how they were thinking in their particular period of time and the pressures that were swirling around them. You're also, you also make a case sort of early in the book that, you know, their writing was also about an age in the midst of sort of different um, winds coming in different directions. And perhaps that there is something that we can understand about both their writing, particularly in an encounter, intellectual encounter between the two of them, that can help us perhaps in this age of what might be um, similar kinds of winds shifting and swirling around us? Um, yeah, well, I think that, you know, we're at, we're at sort of a, a, a very similar moment in some ways where, um, you know, you just have to open the newspaper and you don't have to go very far to, to you know, sort of get bombarded with, um, with uh, um, you know, just awful news on, on an almost constant basis. Um, but sort of the flip side of this, and this is why I think, you know, in part, Kierkegaard and Marx are such compelling figures, is that they realize that in this crisis, and they're sort of living through similar crises in, in their own in their own time period, that these crises are also times when possibility opens up, where the future emerges with a with a clarity um, that hadn't hadn't existed before, and sort of that uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes social breakdown for us to be able to look past you know the confines of our of our society. But uh, Kierkegaard and Marx were both sort of uh, uh, dreamers in that in that way. And so as, you know, we sort of see, you know, as sort of these reactionary forces are, are building now in, uh, in our own world, we also see uh, the reemergence of, of, uh, of progressive politics, which is something that, you know, at least in my lifetime, I've never, never seen, certainly in, in this scope. And that you know, sort of as we think through, you know, what our future, what our future can be, um, you know, if, if, if my book, you know, has any sort of claim or any contribution to make to that, um, it's to understand, you know, the way that personal transformation and political transformation have to be thought of as together. Um, the way that, uh, um, the way that, you know, uh, um, individuals are radicalized that, you know, for, for years, I think we sort of experienced, uh, um, you know, progressive political voices sort of falling on, on deaf ears. And then all of a sudden, over the past few years, we have a, finally a, a responsive audience who's interested in those kinds of things. And so what explains why people are sort of willing to listen to more uh, progressive political voices now, whereas they weren't interested in, in those kinds of voices, you know, a few years ago. And I think the only real explanation um, is, is really that people have become radicalized, that people have, you know, in part, the struggles been forced on them, but have really many of them transformed in very dramatic ways. And that uh, I think that often, unfortunately, political theorists aren't always as attentive to these kinds of personal transformations uh, as we should be. 
Uh, and that, to my mind, really Kierkegaard provides the most compelling roadmap for how individuals can begin from, you know, a point where they're sort of, you know, completely socialized and, you know, enmeshed in the context of their society and how they begin to question that and eventually become sort of radical, radical agents of change. And it really is a, a personal struggle for each of us. And so given that it is a personal struggle for each of us, um, what is it that you're struggling to write about now? Yeah, it, is, it really is a struggle. <laughs> You'd think that the second book would be easier than the first, but uh, it is a struggle too. Um, I am working on a, on a second book now. Um, it's provisionally uh, entitled uh, In Defense of Ad Hominem. Um, and uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, ad hominem argument is a kind of argument where you attack a speaker's motive or character rather than the substance of their argument. And because of this, it's pretty much universally decried and considered an invalid form of argument, because rather than arguing with our opponents in good faith, we seem to be lodging personal attacks instead. Um, but the purpose of the book is to argue that this faith and sort of civil rational discourse is actually a misplaced faith. Uh, and it's misplaced because our beliefs aren't actually things that we believe in because they're true. Um, but a lot of the time, and especially when it comes to normative questions of ethical and political life, um, we believe things because we want to believe them, that we're self-interested in the choice of our beliefs. And because we're sort of motivated agents in choosing our beliefs because our self-interest so often guides our beliefs, that the truth of our beliefs does in fact often reside in the motive behind them. So when you're making an ad hominem argument and, and attacking someone's motive, that, that in some cases, this form of argument actually helps you get to the actual truth. And, um, you know, in part, uh, the purpose of the book is to help us rethink or reimagine the public sphere. It seems like a very opportune moment uh, um, to sort of weigh into that, that question of what politics is all about and what the public sphere is all about. Um, because I think for a long time, we've treated the public sphere as a kind of a discursive realm, a marketplace of ideas in which ideas compete against one another uh, to demonstrate their truth. But uh, I'm going to argue in this book that, that uh, the public realm, it's better if we think of it as sort of a volitional or willful realm of competing, uh, competing interests. And part of what sort of motivated me in this project was that, you know, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, have experienced for themselves, that uh, arguing with people these days can be extremely frustrating because you don't have to go very far to encounter someone who's just totally intransigent, who, you know, no amount of... Uh, of uh, sort of argumentation or evidence is going to change their change their mind, and if we approach this through the lens of ad hominem, that I think you know there's sort of a, a, an emancipatory potential there where we don't have to feel as burdened to convince everyone to change their mind, and that maybe we can be a little bit freed to invest our, our time and energy in more politically fruitful activities. So when you finish your book on ad hominem, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about of it? Of course, I would love to. Oh, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, today I was joined by Jamie Arusi, who is the author of The Dialectical Self, Kierkegaard, Marx, and the Making of the Modern Subject. This was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Jamie, is there any particular place that somebody can get a hold of your book? Probably the Penn Press website is the best place to go. 
Okay. Um, so University of Pennsylvania Press website and all the other places that one can usually find um, these kinds of books. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you.